This morning, our scripture comes from the book of Joshua, chapter 24. I will be reading verses 1 through 4, then 11 through 16, and then 19 through 25. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Sheshem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand, and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. But Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. And he said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Sheshem. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sam. Good morning, Lake Baldwin Church. Join me in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, turn towards us and be gracious towards us. Father, your word is eternal. 
And when all the words and philosophies of this world come to an end, your word will remain. Father, we need your help this morning to receive your word. So we pray, O God, give us repentance of heart. Soften our hearts and strengthen our faith that we may see more of your son, Jesus. See his excellent worth. See his beauty and more of his glory that our hearts would fall down and worship him this morning. And we ask this in his precious name. Amen. Well, one of the things I enjoyed back in my corporate days was working with college interns. I love the fact that they were wet behind the ears, they were bright-eyed and optimistic, uh, they had boundless enthusiasm, they had fresh ideas, um, they weren't yet cynical and jaded like most of us who have been in the corporate world for a long time. And I enjoyed training them and mentoring them, pouring into them. And the companies I worked for, they would normally go on some kind of rotation and get exposed to different aspects of the business. And I know one of the last companies I worked for, we would often uh, take them someplace fun for the day, like Universal, just hang out with them, and then invest even more personally into them. And then, when they graduated from college, the big question would be, who would they go to work for? Who would they go to work for? Well, it's a free society, and of course, we thought it was logical that they would come to us because we had poured so much into them, but often they chose somewhere else, maybe uh, due to location or money or something else. But we have a very similar idea that's going on in our passage today in Joshua chapter 24. God has invested in Israel. We've seen this over the past several months. He's poured into them, and you would think, based on that, there would be a logical conclusion to that question, whom will you serve now, Israel? Whom will you serve? We're going to unpack that idea a little bit in the passage today. But it's hard to believe, right? We're at the end of our study in the book of Joshua. And at this point in redemptive history, Israel is now in the land. God has helped them conquer the land. God is giving it to them. They're, they're going about the job now of possessing the promised land. And what you're going to see in chapter 24 is Joshua is going to rewind and he's going to recount God's grace and God's blessing upon them. And based on that, he's going to pose that question, whom will you serve, Israel? Whom will you serve? And then based on their answer, Joshua is going to renew the covenant with God and Israel and then the book, sadly, is going to close. It's going to close, sadly, with the death of Joshua. It's going to close with the death of Eleazar. And so in this last chapter, as we unpack it, I want us to unpack three things about God's grace this morning. First, we're going to look at the extravagance of God's past grace. Then we're going to look at the logical response or the reasonable response to his grace and then we're going to wrap it up by looking at the necessity of God's future grace. Past grace, the response to God's grace, and then God's future grace. I want to jump right into that first point, the extravagance of God's past grace. We see that in verses 2 through 4. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, 
Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And so as we look at this idea of the extravagance of God's past grace, I want to look at it in three different ways. I want to look at it in terms of his election and his blessing on Abraham. And then secondly, I want to look at it according to these verses as God has led Egypt into, led Israel into Egypt. That also is God's grace. And then we're going to look at verse 13, and in verse 13, we're going to see that Israel receives something that they have not worked for, nor something that they have earned. And so first, the God's past grace in the historical election and blessing of Abraham, the scripture says that we have Terah, we have Abraham and Nahor, these are their great, 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 great grandparents, and God has taken them out of this place that is beyond the river Euphrates. And we learn in Genesis chapter 11, that is the place of Ur. And that's where the Chaldeans are living. And we see here in verse 2 that they were serving other gods. In other words, we have this family. They don't know God. They are worshiping the God of the Chaldeans. They are pagans. And our scripture says that, that he, God says, I took you. I took Abraham. In other words, God chose Abraham. And he took him out of that place of Ur and he made him to wander into the promised land. God revealed himself to Abraham. And this is very significant. Because if, if, Ab if God did not reveal himself to Abraham, Abraham would still be there a Chaldean exercising pagan worship. We know also that God sets his grace upon Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He does that by promising this land that we've been talking about for many months. He promises land, he promises an offspring, and he promises to bless all of the families of the earth through Abraham. But if God did not reach down and touch Abraham's heart and call him to himself, Abraham would have never known Yahweh, the one true God. And we, we find out that scripture says in Isaiah 41 and in James 2 that Abraham is a friend of God. He's a friend of God because God befriended him first. The scripture this morning talks about Jacob. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that Jacob gets a new name. His new name is Israel. Israel, in the time of Joshua, they descended from Abraham. And Abraham, I mean, Israel only exists because God is keeping his covenant promise. His promise to give land, but more importantly, his promise to bless all of the families of the earth through an offspring. And that offspring is going to come through the line of Jacob or Israel. And so if God did not have grace upon Abraham there would be no nation of Israel. Maybe they would still be in Ur, worshiping the gods of the Chaldeans. And by way of application, if we think of ourselves, if we are in Christ this morning, 
It's because God has been at work in your life calling you to himself. He has given you grace. And you should consider, just like Abraham, where would I be if God did not call me to himself? Where would I be? What kind of person would I be if God did not bring Christ to me? Abraham would still be a pagan worshiper. You would probably be also. Well, we see God's grace, his extravagant grace, and the way he calls and he blesses Abraham. We see it also in this verse 4, his past grace in Israel's suffering. It says, now pay attention to this. If the verse is not up there, go ahead and flip back to it and put it back up there. This is, uh, this is one of those astounding verses in the Bible that I look at and I get astonished at. And to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. Now, this is amazing. Now, remember that Jacob is Israel. If you're a student of the Bible, you know that Esau is not of that promised line. Israel is of the people of promise. Esau is not. And Scripture is saying here that Esau gets some land to possess. Right, the book of Joshua is all about the promised people of God getting their land to possess, but that's not what it says here. It says the line that is not of God is getting something to possess, and God's people get what? They get Egypt. They go down to Egypt? Egypt is a place of slavery. Egypt is a place where Israel would camp out for 430 years. You know, this is probably something we may see today. We see the people who are not of God prospering. And we wonder, why are the people of God not prospering? Incidentally, this is one of those verses in the Bible I look to and I say, you know what? The Bible is true. The Bible is true because if I was going to write a book and attract people to a religion, I'm not going to put in there something like that, that God's people are going to go into slavery I would have said, yeah, God's people, they inherit the land right now. That's not what scripture says. God's people, they go into slavery, and here is God's grace. We don't know all of the things that God is doing, but we do know from scripture that one of the reasons Israel is going down to Egypt is because there is going to be a famine. And this is the way that God is going to preserve the nation of Israel, because in Egypt, there are all the resources to find protection from this famine. This is how God is keeping his covenant promise. He has to preserve the nation of Israel in order to keep his promise. We also learn in Exodus chapter 1 what's happening with the people of Israel while they're in Egypt. Well, they are prospering. They are growing. They are multiplying, and they are growing strong. So God is giving grace to his people by leading them into suffering. Well, I had a friend still do. Early on in the COVID crisis, he, he contracted COVID, and he had it, and he struggled with it for a number of months. This guy, super fit, super intelligent, a good friend, and a uh, fellow believer. And as he was recovering from COVID, COVID really, it did something to his brain. It attacked his brain in the way he was thinking. And one day, instead of going to work, he walked over to the 
nearest overpass of I-95, and he jumped over the bridge. And thankfully, by God's grace, God spared his life. He did not get hit by a car, but he completely messed up his body. Broken legs, fractured, fractured bones, and fractured wrists, and all sorts of problems. He would spend months and months, and still does, working on his recovery. And I met with my friend many times after this, just to try to process what's, what's going on. Why did this, why so much suffering entered into his life? And I'll never forget, one time he, he hit me up with this. This is what he said. Suffering, it's not an obstacle to God's plan. It is his plan. How do you like that from a guy who nearly lost his life? who now forever is changed, he can't really run anymore like he used to, he understands that suffering is not an obstacle to God's plan. You may be here this morning and thinking you're struggling and you're thinking this thing is in the way of God's plan in my life, but that's not the testimony of Scripture. Suffering is God's plan for his people. In 1 Peter Chapter 5, verse 10, Peter just says this to his audience. After you have suffered a little while, after you have suffered a little while, in other words, it's just assumed that God's people will suffer. And I want to say this because I know, I want to say it as carefully as I can and as empathetically as I can because I know that many in here are going through tough times. You're going through things that are just miserable you're going through the valley of the shadow of death. And there are things about suffering that are mysterious. But I want you to know that you can be comforted. God has not left you. He's not left you. He is still in control. He's still sitting on the throne. If suffering were not part of God's plan, then he's not sovereign your suffering doesn't mean that God is somehow out of control. He, can't, he has no power to control your situation. He is fully in control. He is fully sovereign over the thing you're going through, and he is with you in it. He has not left you. And more than that, the God that you cry out to, he knows. He knows the depth of your suffering because he became flesh and endured the same thing. He knows your suffering. We also see in this amazing verse also this idea of delayed gratification. The, the children of Israel, instead of going to the land, they go to slavery, 430 years. Some of you know that our staff, we study uh, the scriptures week by week. We pray and study together. And this past week, we studied this Joshua chapter 24. And I love how Allison Epps said this. We often associate a powerful God with a fast-acting God. We assume that that's the way it works. God's all-powerful, so he can give me what I want right now. But that idea is nowhere to be found in Scripture. We often feel that we have to make things happen for ourselves. If, if we've, been, we've been taught this by our culture. If we don't go after it, if we don't get it for ourselves, it's never going to happen. 
And Madison Avenue has done a great job of conditioning us in this way. Think about Nike's slogan, just do it. Just do it. It's empowering us to go after something and make it happen. We have to make it happen. And this scripture is teaching us no. We don't have to make it happen. Israel did not have to make it happen. They did not have to go and get the promised land for themselves. God would do it in his perfect timing. And we ought to realize when we look at this scripture that God's timing is perfect. And if we truly believe that, we can rest. We can wait patiently upon him with joy, knowing that he's a father who delights to give good gifts to his children. Well, I want to look at that last point of extravagant grace, and it comes in verse 13. In verse 13, it says, I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. This is yet again an example of God's extravagant grace towards his people. You see, they didn't have to work to build these cities. They didn't have to plant these vineyards and orchards. They just can go in and occupy and enjoy the fruit of the land. You know, I, upon moving here about six months ago, we've planted a couple fruit trees, and they're pretty small and pathetic. And I'm thinking I'm going to have to wait a very, very long time to enjoy some fruit from those trees. But here in this scripture, Israel is just getting to enjoy the fruit of the land. This is just a small picture of what we have in Christ Jesus. We have something that we, we didn't earn, we couldn't even work for, but he gives us freely. He gives us an inheritance. We have waiting for us. If we are in Christ this morning, we have a new heaven and a new earth. It's ours. It's ours. You didn't earn that. You didn't build it. You don't deserve it, but he's giving it to you freely if you are in Christ Jesus. Now, why is it so important to spend so much time reviewing God's past grace? Why would Israel have to do this? We actually see they do this over and over again throughout the Bible. It's because if they forget how they got into the promised land, right? It's not their sword. It's not their bow is what the scripture said this morning. It was God himself. If they forget that it's God's grace that got them there, they're going to forget that it's God's grace that keeps them there in the land. And they're going to fall back and they're going to resort to what you and I always resort to when we forget God's grace. We're going to resort to our own resources, our own strength. We're going to worry about it. We're going to try to cling to it and keep it for ourselves and not realize this is just a gift of grace from God. Well, let's jump over and look at that second point, which is the logical response. How do we respond now to God's grace? How does Israel respond, knowing all that God has done for them? Verses 14 through 16 say this, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And then listen to this strange thing. This is Josh, Joshua saying, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, 
We're going to serve the Lord. Then the people answered, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Just like that illustration I gave you before, God had given grace to his people. It's only reasonable that they would serve him, right? That word serve, avad, in the Hebrew, it basically means to work for. Right? In a general sense, it means to work for. It's in a master-servant relationship, that's what it is. But when the object is God Almighty, Yahweh himself, it includes also this idea of full devotion, full worship. It would be only reasonable that Israel would bow down and worship the Lord, given all that God has done. I want you also to notice that there are both positive and negative aspects to this idea of serving or worshiping or being devoted to the Lord. Right? It says that it says, put away the gods that your fathers served. Right? So you can't serve the Lord with full devotion if you're still hanging on to these other gods. And this may come as a surprise to us in Joshua 24. That we've gone through the conquest. We've seen God do amazing things. And Joshua is saying, put away these idols. It means that they still had people clinging to their idols. Idols that they inherited from their parents or idols that they were now being attracted to in this new land, in this new culture. And I think we underestimate for ourselves how hard it is for us to shake our idols, how easily we are influenced and attracted by the idols of our culture. Well, Joshua in, in verse 15, he gives an absurd alternative. He basically says, make a church choice. If you don't want to worship God, then worship these other gods. If you don't want to worship Yahweh, go back to worshiping the Chaldean God. Go back to worshiping the Egyptian God. Maybe cling to these new glitzy gods of this promised land. But he's making a point here. Maybe he's being a little facetious, but he's making a point that we don't have a choice. Israel, you don't have a choice about worship. You are going to worship something. If it's not God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, you're going to worship the gods of the land or some other god. David Foster Wallace is a novelist. He's often quoted by Tim Keller. I wanted to bring this quote to you this morning. This is what he says. He's not a believer. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They are default settings. I find this very insightful from someone who is not a worshiper 
of God Almighty. He knows by instinct that we all worship things. And he's talking about things of this world. Like, we're going to worship these things whether we realize it or not, whether we want to or not. Our hearts are inclined to worship these things. (laughs) And then he makes this astounding statement. Like, if you don't worship something outside of this world, it's going to eat you alive if you worship the things of this world. That's amazing for him to say. Well, what was Joshua's response to, to all of God's grace? We see this in verse 15. He, he says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Remember, Joshua, he was one of two people now in existence that had come out of Egypt. He had, he had gone through the Red Sea. He had wandered in the wilderness, saw all of God's work. He had crossed the River Jordan. He had conquered Jericho. He had seen God's mighty work all along the way. He had a front row seat to God's grace. And he is saying, I'm going to serve the Lord. And the question for us this morning is, what about you? What about your family? Will you serve the gods of this culture, all the glitzy gods that are are attracting our attention, that want our affections, that want our love, that want our time and our precious resources. Will you serve those gods? Will you serve the Lord? What will you teach your children? What are your children learning by watching you? Because your children are pretty smart. They can tell where your affections lie, what you are devoted to. Let's look at that last point now. The necessity of God's future grace in verses 19 and 25. But Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. And then in verse 25, so Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. So Joshua makes this bold assertion to them, and it seems very strange. He says, you're not able to serve the Lord. You're not able to serve the Lord. Is he, is he just simply stating a fact? Is he, is he using rhetoric to kind of warn them? Is he being prophetic? I mean, on all those accounts, we could probably say that, yes, it's all of those things. It reminds me of Jesus in Luke chapter 9, when someone walks up to him, he's on his way to Jerusalem, and someone walks up to him and says, I will follow you wherever you go. And how does Jesus respond to that? Birds have nests, foxes have dens, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, are you sure you can really follow me? I'm a homeless man. Have you really counted the cost? Can you really follow me? Because it doesn't just stop with being homeless. It goes all the way to the cross, all the way to suffering. Can you really follow me? We can't really follow him. And the reason given is right there in the scripture. Joshua says this, God is a holy God. He is a jealous God. This is something that Israel should well know. In Leviticus 11, God says, be holy for I am holy. 
And in Exodus chapter 20, when God is making that covenant and he's giving the Ten Commandments and he says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image. And he's, why is that? In, that? in that chapter it says, because I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Israel knows these things about God. They know that to be in relationship with God, to serve him, to worship him, he requires holiness. He requires exclusivity, utter devotion to God. And guess what? Israel can't do this. No, they cannot serve the Lord with all their hearts. They would need divine assistance. They would need God's help. They would need his future grace in order to do this. And in a similar way, we too need God's grace. We may, we are justified by grace, but we don't go about living the Christian life through our own strength and through our own effort. We need God's grace just as much now as we needed then. Israel came into the promised land, how? Only by God's grace. They, were, they would only be able to stay in the promised land if God continued to give them grace. And so the question this morning is, when you look at yourself, when you look at the way you're living the Christian life, are you powering through? Are you, are you struggling and powering through on your own strength? Are you resting and receiving? Are you relying on the grace and the power of God to live the Christian life? Both we and Israel, we're not able to serve the Lord. We need his grace. We see in verse 25, it was read earlier, that Israel says, we're going to serve the Lord. They actually say it three times in this dialogue. That's pretty strong. Joshua keeps coming back and they say, nope, we're going to serve the Lord. It sounds a little bit overconfident, right? It sounds like they are relying on their own ability to serve the Lord and not recognizing that they can only serve and worship the Lord by his grace, by his power. And we ought to take this same caution as well. We're powerless to serve the Lord. We're powerless to worship him unless he is at work in us giving us grace. But Joshua takes them at their word. Three times they say, we're going to serve the Lord. So he takes them at their word. He renews the covenant between God and Israel. And this is an agreement. If you, if you look at the scripture and you look at what it is, it's an agreement that they're going to commit to serve, to be devoted to, to worship the Lord. Joshua lays down statutes, regulations. Sounds a little bit like a renewal of the Mosaic covenant, which is basically the same thing. Commitment to follow the Lord in his ways. And I want you to see that this covenant is God's future grace to Israel. Why is this covenant future, future grace? God is telling his people how to live in the land. You have to live in covenant with me. You have to follow my ways to live in the land and to flourish. If you want to see what the opposite of it that looks like, just look at the people that are being booted out of the land, the Canaanites. That's what it's like to not live in covenant with God. That's what it's like to not live under God's law. They're sacrificing their children. There's chaos. The strong are oppressing 
the weak. There's sexual perversion and immorality. There's no law. There's no order. There's wickedness. I ran across an article in the Daily Mail this past week, and it's recounting what's going on in Haiti. And you may know about a year and a half ago, the president was assassinated. And so what's going on now in that country? Well, the article tells us that there's about 100 rival gangs vying for power. They're going throughout the country, ravaging the place. They're killing people, they're raping people, they're stealing, they're trying to grab power. And it was saddening for me as I read more in this article and hearing the account from a 16-year-old girl. And she talks about seeing her father and her brother being dragged out of the house, beaten, tied up. And you know how they kill them? They put a tire around their neck and they set them on fire. And then she watches her, her sister being dragged out, beaten and raped. This is what it's like to have no law. This is what it's like to not live under God's covenant. And trust me when I say this, you don't want to live in Canaan as a Canaanite. You don't want to live apart from God's law. That's what it's like. That's why this is God's grace to his people. Live like you are my people. You will flourish. I want you also to see that this covenant shows the necessity of this future grace. Because again, Israel actually can't do this. They can't keep the covenant. And this covenant is going to show them that that righteousness, that a relationship with God, a right relationship with God is not achieved by keeping the covenant, by law keeping, because they can't do it. And so the covenant is pointing to something greater, that they would need someone to come to fulfill the covenant for them. We know that now is Christ. They had that in the sign of the covenant, circumcision. They had that in the sacrament of the Passover. They had that in all the sacrifices at the altar, pointing to the need for righteousness, for cleansing away from sin. They needed a perfect law keeper. They needed a perfect covenant keeper. That covenant keeper is Christ. They needed future grace. Well, this book, it ends with this, this call for commitment. Whom will you serve? That word serve is used 16 times. I think it forms the main thrust of the passage. And this question, whom will you serve? I can't think of a more important question for us to marinate in this morning, to be asking ourselves, whom will we serve? If you're in Christ this morning, you are saved by an extravagant grace. You're saved by an extravagant grace. You ought to recommit to serving the Lord, not in your own strength, but out of that grace that he gives you in Christ. And if you have yet to follow Christ, whom will you serve? Will you serve the glitzy gods of our culture that are going to eat you alive? Or will you serve the one who made you? The one who created you? The one who is giving you grace day by day? The one who has revealed himself in his son Jesus? Because I want you to remember this. God is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He demands perfect holiness of you. He demands your exclusive worship and guess what? You can't do it. 
Neither can I. That's why we need Jesus. His perfect righteousness, his perfect record, him keeping the law, his perfect holiness, we need that. Whom will you serve? I urge you this morning, serve Christ today. Serve him by faith. Would you pray with me? Mighty Father, gracious God, we do pray that you would turn your eyes towards us and give us grace this morning. Father, we are far from a holy people. We are far from a people that are fully devoted to you. Our hearts are divided. We can't keep your law. We are all covenant breakers, and we need a Savior. We thank you, Lord, that for those of us who are here this morning who are in Christ, we are the recipients of an extravagant grace. You have lavished grace upon grace upon us, and when we look upon your Son, and we look at the stripes, and we look at the nails in his hands, the thorns on his head, we see an extravagant grace, a love poured out so that we could be set free from idols that eat us alive. Father, we praise you and thank you for that this morning. We pray for the one here or the many here who don't know you, who are still worshiping themselves, worshiping the idols of our culture. Oh God, soften their hearts. Give them grace to receive your son. We ask this in his precious name. Amen.